You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. And welcome to Belaboured number 96. We're talking in this episode with Joel Berger, a second-generation Detroit teacher, about the twin crises befalling Michigan, one unfolding in Flint's water system and the other unfolding in Detroit's public schools. But first, the news. And one of the Obama administration's first major initiatives on labor issues a few years ago was to push through legislation to strengthen equal pay protections that guard against gender discrimination at work. Now that act, the Lilly Ledbetter Act, is finally getting some teeth. Obama has initiated a wage data collection program that will force employers to report wage and salary data related to race, gender, and ethnicity. And this will enable federal authorities to monitor disparities in compensation and discern industry standards so that individual firms can then be compared to that and might form the basis of litigation or uh, equal employment opportunity commission uh, cases. So the data can empower the commission to target specific employers, um, and it will generally put more regulatory muscle behind a system that remains largely driven by individual complaints, and in turn only really helps a fraction of the most vulnerable workers, particularly women and people of color. According to Washington Post, quote, on the updated form, employers would have to identify the race and gender of employees and report their W-2 earnings for a 12-month period, including tips, taxable benefits, and bonuses. And the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission will publicly release this aggregated data every year so that workers know the average pay they should be getting for their job and their industry. Although it's by no means completely comprehensive, it's probably one of the better measures that we have nationwide to keep the general public informed about an aspect of the economy that has historically and rather outrageously been kept hidden by corporations that have an interest in keeping their workers in the dark. For individual workers, uh, instead of going through the awkward process of trying to compare their uh, salary with their coworkers uh, on a case-by-case basis, they will now be able to more easily bring legal complaints against their bosses if they um, have information showing that they are being systematically underpaid compared to the rest of the industry. Trade groups, meanwhile, are predictably bristling at this idea. They're saying it'll add a, another regulatory burden But data collection and disclosure is really the very least the administration can do to ensure that the laws and the books are actually enforceable, particularly in sectors where corporations have always had the advantage of asymmetrical information, which allows them to basically discriminate in pay and benefits as well as promotional opportunities with virtual impunity. According to the Washington Post, the commission recorded over 26,000 sex-based discrimination charges and over 21,000 race-based charges in 2014 alone. And while there are many factors feeding into the so-called wage gap, and there is a large debate around what exactly accounts for the fact that women are still only making about 79 cents on the dollar to every man's salary, with even greater disparities for black and Latino women, Clearly, it's not just de jure or explicit discrimination on the job that limits people's opportunities. We can see from looking at aggregate data um, how these patterns feed into each other and applying the tools of big data towards the broader project of understanding what's going on in the workforce as a whole can help us understand why individuals are getting paid more or less than they're worth. 
Last Friday, the news went around that the ports of New York and New Jersey were closed after thousands of longshoremen had walked off the job. It was unclear immediately, and kind of remains unclear, why the workers had gone out, as they were not in contract negotiations, and their actions immediately caused consternation at the ports and led the Waterfront Commission of New York Harbor to declare that it was opening an investigation into what it called an illegal job action. The workers returned to the job on Friday night after an arbitrator found that the work stoppage violated the terms of their contract with, between the International Longshoremen's Association and the ports, but just one day of refusing to move the massive amounts of freight that come in through the East Coast's biggest container port represents a lot of money. Uh, for comparison, a 2004 dock workers' strike in Los Angeles and Long Beach was calculated to cost $150 million a day. Union leaders also professed surprise at the walkout, but cited growing anger among the port workers who are overseen by a 60-year-old commission investigating corruption on the docks. Think the Marlon Brando movie On the Waterfront, except with less apologies for naming names during the Hollywood blacklist. ILA Public Relations Director Jim McNamara called the walk-off a member-driven action and told reporters that the workers were concerned about their jobs, citing harassment by the commission and drug testing that was not covered by the collective bargaining agreement. We will keep you updated as we find out new information, and of course, if we have listeners who were involved in this or know more, you can always reach us at belabored@dissentmagazine.org. On Monday in New York, Uber drivers unleashed their ire on the infamous ride-sharing company with major protests by angry drivers who do not like the fact that their rate is suddenly dropping. Whether you call them workers or independent contractors, they are pretty angry, and they say that they're getting screwbird by a dramatic drop in their compensation. The rate drop will not only undercut their earnings, but also dent their competitive advantage against area taxi drivers. As we've noted before and we labored, the Uber business model and the flood of Uber cars on the streets of New York have alarmed traditional cabbies and incensed labor advocates across the city who see the so-called sharing economy system as a threat to essential worker and consumer protections. Many have criticized the company's tactic of passing itself off as a mere app provider rather than an actual boss, even though they're basically controlling the working conditions of drivers, and this recent rate drop just proves that point. According to the New York Times, drivers will see cuts of some 15% on average per ride, and the company has tried to justify this by saying it would make Uber overall more competitive and then benefit drivers. Due to the holiday slow business, the company said, Quote, we lowered prices to get more people using Uber, which is good for drivers because it means less time waiting around for trips. But drivers protested fiercely, complaining that they were already squeezed by their current rate structure and they were already working incredibly long hours, just like regular taxi drivers do. The protest seems to be a rather 180 turn from the stage-managed protests that we saw some months ago when Uber drivers demonstrated in the streets to actually defend the company against the city's effort to impose more oversight and cap the growth of Uber cars on the streets. And accordingly, this time around, perhaps surprisingly, the New York Taxi Workers Alliance aligned with Uber drivers, and they found themselves protesting on the same side as both traditional cabbies and app-based drivers demanded equity and accountability from this corporate hegemony. 
Separately, there are reports that several thousand Uber drivers are planning on rallying in the streets on Super Bowl Sunday in California to disrupt the games and send an angry message to the company in response to another sudden rate drop. This one aimed at offsetting the effect of surge pricing triggered by an influx of traffic during the football festivities. Like New York City drivers, the drivers in San Francisco and Los Angeles are pretty pissed that Uber is justifying this as usual based on free market contingencies. According to The Observer, Super Bowl promotion will drop rates from $1.15 per mile to just $0.50 per mile. And drivers fear that this is only the first step in a pattern of shortchanging drivers during peak business periods. So there's anger from coast to coast. Whether this translates into more cross-organizing between traditional cabbies and Uber drivers is a different question, but we can look to Seattle to see how ride-sharing and regular cabs are finding common ground when it comes to pushing for workers' rights. As we discussed in Belabored Episode 94 with Takale Gobena and Rebecca Smith of National Employment Law Project, Seattle has just passed a new ordinance enabling ride-sharing and taxi drivers to engage in collective bargaining in a comprehensive citywide process and it may end up benefiting both taxi cab drivers as well as Uber drivers. New York City so far has remained at a political impasse with Uber, but the more the company's corporate image is tainted by its unsavory business expansion schemes and the more its own drivers are willing to revolt, we might see drivers across the city coming together as a labor force to demand rights for everybody in the streets. Black Youth Project 100, or BYP 100, is one of many groups of young black organizers making trouble in recent years, often erroneously assumed to be only focused on stopping police violence. While that is, of course, an important issue, many of these groups have a much broader agenda. This week, BYP 100 released its Agenda to Build Black Futures, an economic justice agenda that should be taken seriously by anyone who's concerned with economic issues and by the labor movement, I think, in particular. We'll put a link to the full agenda on the Descent website, and hopefully we will have a guest on to talk about this more in the future. But for now, I'll just mention a few of the issues that are part of the agenda. There is a call for reparations, imagined not just as for slavery, but for discrimination and mass incarceration. There is a Workers' Bill of Rights that includes not just a living wage and paid family leave, paid sick days, collective bargaining rights, but also protection from discrimination based on incarceration, gender identity, it calls for an end to race and gender pay gaps, it calls for a federal jobs program and a guaranteed living income regardless of employment status. It calls for an end to the profitable nature of punishment, of course, once again, mass incarceration. It specifically calls for us to value the worth of women's work, which includes investing in quality universal child care and public schools relevant to today's discussion about Detroit. And it includes reproductive health care as a labor issue. It calls for investments in worker cooperatives and community land trusts. It is, in other words, a comprehensive agenda for remaking a more just economy, one that would be better for all workers, but would also address the specific harms done through generations of racist policies and exploitation. In a moment when people keep talking as if socialism and economic justice are issues that are at odds with creating racial justice, BYP 100 has put forth an impressive document that will make you question your assumptions about what justice looks like. Last episode, I talked briefly about the teacher sick out protests in Detroit coming as they were alongside national awareness of the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. 
Both of these issues are related to something that we've covered on the podcast before, the undemocratic anti-labor and now it turns out literally poisonous emergency manager system in the state of Michigan. This week, our guest is second-generation Detroit teacher Joel Berger, who talks to us about the teacher's actions and renewed attention drove out Detroit school's emergency manager, the same man who had been in charge in Flint, and what it's like teaching under a completely defunded regime. Joel, tell us how long you've been teaching in Detroit, and tell us a little bit about your experience and how the schools have changed in your time there. Sure. Actually, this is my first year in Detroit public schools. I got into teaching um, through some charters in Detroit, so this is my sixth year teaching overall, and been in Detroit the entire time. Um, my mother also taught for uh, 27 years in DPS. She retired out about two or three years ago. You know, I, I think the, the the biggest thing was back in '99 when I was still, I was you know, 10 or something. Um, that that was kind of the first big uh, event where the the district was taken over by the state, um, despite running a a surplus of about $100 million or so. And kind of since then, there's been this kind of uh, imposed austerity that's gotten worse and worse and worse to where, you know, my my mother had to pay the $10,000 to the district as part of a, a deal to you know, to loan the district money, each teacher paid the district nine or ten grand back in '09 or 2010. Um, the, I'm I'm seeing that just in posterity right now, this 10% of pay cut across the board. So my my salary is 10% less than it should be. People's salaries, I think, are either 99 or 2001 levels and just frozen there. Um, and so I saw my mother kind of dealing with that year after year after year too um, until. She ended up retiring out two or three years ago um, because it was hectic. Doesn't even begin to describe how. I mean, I remember they they did a few years in a row where they just laid off all the staff in the summer, and then people had to reapply for their jobs. Um, and most people did get jobs back, but it was not all in the same schools. It's unbelievable if you didn't actually live through it or experience it. Yeah, it sounds it. And yet you still wanted to be a public school teacher, so. Yeah. That tells us something about how committed the teachers are to the schools. Yeah, I think that's, that's I think, one of the most powerful things to me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm barely breaking even right now in terms of, I, I, you know, I can't really save penny one for anything. And that's a little scary given, you know, that I'm frozen at this salary until who knows when. But... Uh, my colleagues are just some of the most dedicated folks, and especially now when you have this huge vacancy problem and stuff in the district because of a lot of these these issues. The folks who are left in these buildings, by and large, are some of just the most incredible, most engaging, creative, genuine, heartfelt educators that I've ever met. I mean, people are not doing this certainly not doing this for the money. Um, and, and, um, so it's, it's been really inspiring just kind of the, the quality of human beings that, that, that this, there can be this many human beings of this, um, great and that are this focused on the kids and that, that, and on the community and have this greater sense of, of purpose and service to the community. It's just been taking these cuts and, and, seeing all these injustices done and stuff and just trying to, to stay in it somehow for the kids. Um, it's, uh, it's incredibly humbling for me starting out 
still relatively young in, in, the, in my teaching profession, just being able to work with these folks. So we've talked on this podcast before about the emergency manager issue, but for our listeners who don't really know, how did Detroit public schools in particular end up with an emergency manager who appoints him and how is this different from having an elected school board or even like the kind of appointed school board that some places have? There's a long story and a shorter story behind it. Um, the, the emergency managers came to be in 2009 uh, ostensibly because of the district running such a large deficit. Again, though, the state controlled the district from 99 to 2006, and when the state left in 2006, they had run up a deficit despite starting with a, with a surplus, right? So this, it, it's basically emergency management is based on this faulty idea that the quote-unquote problems with the uh, school district um, comes from uh, kind of inefficiencies and bloated labor contracts and that type of stuff. And so the idea is that you get this emergency manager. They actually, they used to call them emergency financial managers. And then there was a slight tweak to the law a few years later that made them, their powers even more expansive. But uh, basically they just have kind of carte blanche to do what they want to do in order to kind of quote unquote, write the financial ship in the district. That's the idea behind them. Mm-hmm problems with that are many. First, I mean, even even by the measure of, of that, it hasn't worked. I mean, the, the deficit has ballooned from about $219 million or something back in 2009 when the first of four emergency managers was appointed um, to where it's $515 million today. So if, if you're even judging them by their own metric, yeah. they're not working. But uh, the, the broader problem is is that it's a faulty metric and, and um it completely robs um, citizens and community of voice. These emergency managers are appointed by the governor. Um, we have a Republican governor right now, and they are completely unaccountable to anyone but the, the governor. They're not accountable to the students, to the parents, to the taxpaying citizens of Detroit, to the teachers. Um, they can override labor contracts. They can do whatever they want. And so you, you saw the kind of problem with that a rough kind of in Flint where there were emergency managers in charge of that entire city. Um, again, people were trying to raise this, this awareness of like that, that something was wrong with this water. But again, the emergency manager early who until kind of yesterday when he announced he's stepping down at the end of the month had been emergency manager in Flint during the water thing. Now he's in Detroit public schools, both times appointed by our governor they're just not accountable to the citizens. And so they focus explicitly on the fiscal bottom line of things to the exclusion of any other types of public health concerns. And, and I mean, it, the, the structure of emergency management, it, it makes sense that it would work that way, but it's completely anti-democratic. The way that it's been imposed in Michigan has been very uh, racially unjust. It's, it's mostly black and brown communities, um, almost exclusively, actually, that have been placed under emergency management for various reasons. So you, you basically have this situation where if you have a grievance, if you have a problem, and you are seeing this going on on the ground, you have no recourse. You can't be frustrated at what's going on in the schools and elect a new school board. You don't have that power. You can elect a school board, but they don't have any power. The emergency manager does. And especially in a city where I think it was upwards of 90% of the voters in, in the city of Detroit voted for 
a different gubernatorial candidate than our current Republican governor, it just blows my mind of how anti-democratic it is that that, that is the the man, Mr. Governor Rick Snyder, that gets to appoint the, the leader of, of our public schools and, and things like that, again, completely against the, the public will. Um, and it's just a trip. I, I taught eighth grade social studies for five years before I to, to my current school where I'm teaching ninth grade English. And to teach, try to teach students, because in, in Michigan, the eighth grade curriculum is very much about kind of foundations of constitutional government and to sort of teach them about democracy, uh, you know, the, the Republican form of government, just basic foundations of, of democratic principles and, and ideas, core democratic values. To teach that while under the, the power of an emergency manager is one, it's just one of the most, it, it's ironic and, and, and tragic things because you're basically telling the kids, this is how it should be, and this is how it is in most communities, except not here. And there's really not a good answer for why that, that is not here. You know, and I, you know, I grew up, you know, my mother being a DPS teacher and, and keeping us, my sisters and I, very civically involved in stuff. And just to completely suspend democracy in that way and, and just blatantly go against the will of, of the people, it, it, you, you just can't fathom it. it. It just seems it's so wrong on so many levels, and yet it's happening here in Michigan, and it's unbelievable. It does seem unfathomable now that it's reached this crisis point, but um, there's you know, as you're probably aware, having grown up in Detroit, there's a pretty long history of, um, you know, these crises erupting out of a pretty long-standing pattern of, um, you know, economic inequality, um, of uh, various forms of segregation, and of the yeah. kind of social disenfranchisement of a lot of working class and particularly uh, um, black working class uh, communities. Yeah. And I was wondering if, you know, you as an educator um, in the community, as well as someone who grew up there, how does this affect your day-to-day -day work experience? How do you see it playing out in the classroom with your students? And how does it affect the way you approach your job? Um, the, the toughest thing is just, and, and this is kind of a, across the district, because um, I'm, I'm lucky. I mean, my students are incredible, and I love them to death. Um, I have some just uh, uh, the, the just best students, but I, I I definitely see the the strain, especially across the district. Um, just some of the schools that I, I'm not sure if you've seen the videos yet or 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 images, but just some of the inhumane conditions. Not luckily at, at my building, but at some of some of our buildings across the district that come from a complete kind of lack of concern um, and indifference um, from kind of the powers that be, to see that and to see kids who, what was it, the mayor did a, a walkthrough of this one building, and you have little four-year-olds in about a 48-degree classroom wearing coats, and it's like that every morning. So so that type of stuff, it, it just makes you, I mean, it, it kind of like tears tears your heart apart. Um, in terms of my day-to-day, my -day, like I said, I'm a... I'm, uh, Lucky to a certain extent, I'm at one of the, the magnet high schools within DPS that students have to test to get into, Cast Tech, in downtown Detroit. So 
some of the, the, those really intense building issues and stuff that you see at, at other schools. Um, that's not my, my concern as much. But, you know, the kids feel it. The kids can, can sense um, that, uh, you know, that things are, are going on um, in the district. The kids know that uh, the kids kind of feel that uneasiness of, you know, where you, you're being told by state legislators and stuff that the district's going to run out of money in April. And, um, you have, you know, some of our Republican state legislators like Tim Kelly and, uh, who's a head of school aid committee in the state house literally saying, dissolve the district, let's charter it. Um, just publicly. Um, and, uh, so the kids are not immune to that. They see that. <laughs> they know, they know what's going on. They live this experience every day. And so, you know, in terms of how I take that, uh, you know, into my classroom and to what extent um, I do, you know, I I was having a great discussion with a friend this weekend because, you know, I was feeling like I was almost having to kind of compartmentalize myself. Like on the one hand, I'm trying to teach my kids. We're reading Kindred by Octavia Butler right now, which is an incredible novel um, and deals with a lot of themes of, of um um, race and gender and um, class and, and the power dynamics within that interpersonally as well as legally. and um, So it's, it's kind of a rich jumping off point to just kind of examine um, what's going on right now in our society and in our city and with our schools. And so I was having a conversation with my friend this weekend, though, because I felt very compartmentalized. I felt like I was doing my teaching in the classroom and trying to keep on top of that. Um, and on the other hand, trying to engage in some way in this um, kind of struggle just to, to, to just foundationally save public schools in Detroit and, and help be a part of, of this, the solution to help just keep public schools in Detroit existing um, and, and have some of the democratic mechanism for people to, to, to hold school board members um, accountable rather than having these emergency managers. Um, so I, I feel like my energy has been, you know, so I have, I feel like I've had to divide it between these two really intense things. Because teaching in and of itself, I have almost 200 students, you know, and um, grading, you know, in English is, is no joke <laughs> with essays and stuff and, and lesson planning and, and all of that. Um, but I had this great discussion this weekend, and he basically um, really encouraged me to kind of bring those two parts of myself together a little bit more and kind of open some space for the students to kind of express what they think is going on um, and have some conversations about it and, and relate it kind of explicitly to, to the text that we're reading and some of the themes that, that we're exploring in that text. And so I, I kind of was able to do that. And we had kind of a journaling thing yesterday about it and that jumped into some really incredible and uh, powerful class discussions. Um, and that felt really kind of cathartic too for the kids, I, I think, but also for me. Um, and, uh, I think that that's important. The kids, they can't ignore it and they're not going to ignore it. I mean, it's, it's part of their reality. It's part of our reality that the, these kind of wild times we're living in here in the public schools in Detroit. And, um, I almost think doing, trying to ignore it is kind of a disservice. And so I'm going to try to find ways to, to, to continue to kind of just weave it is through the different narratives that we're exploring um, because that's the, the type of education that matters and that will, I think, really stick with them as if it's, it's incredibly relevant. 
Yeah, and uh, I'm sure even if it's, uh, you know, not directly affecting the actual trappings of the school building, I mean, they're coming from these communities that are affected by austerity in all sorts of ways. Oh, totally. I mean, a lot of my kids came from some of the, the ones that you're seeing on the news. Like, th- those were their neighborhood schools that they went to before they went to, to CAS and stuff. You know, like, it's, it's, there's, very, there's no degrees of, there's so few degrees of, of separation and removal, right? I'm curious, um, you, you noted that you had taught in charters before. Um, how has yes. Detroit been affected by the charter school movement? Um, you know, I know it's a source of uh, some controversy in cities across the country. Sure. How has um, Detroit reacted in, and having taught on both sides of that uh, debate? Um, how, yeah. how, has, uh, how, how do you feel the teaching workforce is responding in the union? First of all, I would say that by and large, um, I, I think that charters in structurally um, the, the, the more I've learned, the more I've lived, the more I've taught in, in different types of environments, I think that they're really uh, a negative force on, on public education in, in general. Um, just in that, um, especially in, in Detroit, where there's kind of no cap on them um, currently. And so I think it's Detroit really is it's like the second largest charter price district in the country, like students, school-aged children that live in the city of Detroit, about half attend Detroit public schools and about half attend, you know, one of 300 or so or however many it is, or it might be more like around 100 or so charter schools, right, yeah. so that are within the city limits, some right outside the city limits. They just lifted the cap, I think. Yeah, they lifted the cap recently in some legislation um, because with our gerrymandered districts that we have in, in the state of Michigan, you know, our state Senate is, I think, 26 Republicans and 12 Democrats. And I'm not someone who kind of hews to party politics or anything, but that's hugely problematic for public education uh, when Republicans have an over two-thirds majority in the, the, the state Senate. So I think that that was after one of those elections that they redrew those lines that they were able to lift the cap, have the political um, vote to do that. But also in terms of, of charters, I mean... You know, you're, you're so um, kind of atomized, kind of at your individual schools and buildings. Very easy for, you know, administration to kind of do whatever they want, these management companies to do whatever they want. Um, and there's not this broader sense of, I think, public um, service and, and purpose behind those schools. Because, um, you know, some of them are nonprofits, some of them are for-profits, but they're all competing for, for students. Um, and so... You, you just have this really kind of flawed incentive structure where schools are, you know, trying to track all these students before they have this thing called Count Day in Michigan where they count the students on, like, the first Tuesday of October. Charters are, are, are just, I think, a really um, negative force in terms of the, the broader purposes of, of public education and public schooling. And also in terms of, of staff and charters, you know, I you feel really not having a union – really make you feel paranoid, not having any type of uh, job protection and um, feeling like you're just kind of at the, the whim of the graces of, of this management company and, and whatever. So people, I think, you know, a lot of people who would speak out more about some things that are, are wrong and stuff are, are caught between their usually very meager paychecks, because I certainly wasn't getting the big bucks in, in charters, or getting fired, right? And I, I know people personally who have tried to unionize at their charter schools in Detroit and um, got 
fired for doing it, despite that, you know, being illegal. The management companies, you know, found some reason that they said that, that the person could be fired that was maybe not technically organizing. But, you know, I, I think of UPREP or uh, University Yes Academy last year, they staff voted the United, the whole thing with in, in NRLB, everything. They voted for it. They were supposed to do it. And um, the management company said that they weren't going to run the school anymore. They basically reformed maybe two weeks later under a new legal name and became the new management company for the school. And because of the way the law is written, they, they're asserting that they don't have to recognize the union because they're a different management company. I mean, it, it's just, it, it just boggles your mind. And it's not like those educators wanted like some fat cat, you know, salaries or anything. They, they just saw things going on in the classrooms that were kind of messed up and saw like policies and things that were coming down from the management company without any input from students and parents and teachers, you know, and wanted some kind of institutional mechanism by which to hold that administration accountable, that some type of check and balance, right? And um, what you're seeing, I think, with charters, there's no checks and balances, at least certainly not in the way that um, they're running Detroit right now. And with emergency management and DPS, there's certainly no checks and balances. So there's there's kind of no one holding the people at the top accountable despite them coming down, you know, more and more and more and stripping resources and things from those at the kind of bottom of the food chain, so to speak, uh, the students, the parents, and teachers to a lesser extent. But, you know, I think it's obscene. I, it's just such a perversion of, of how public schooling should work, of how a democratic society should be run. And it's, it's just really painful to, to witness as someone in it, but also just like as a, as a human being, just to see just how this, this plays out. And, and um, yeah, it's, I, don't, I, I, can't even, I can't even describe how, how, uh, how, how hard it is to just watch it happening and, and to try to engage in fighting against it, but to feel like it's so powerless sometimes. Again, I mean, the fact that this, this whole building at this one charter school voted to unionize, um, and that's a, that's a big thing. Like, it takes a lot to get people there, you know, and, and they have had so much community meetings, so many community meetings and support and all of this stuff, and to drop out of the management company, reform with some of your same, you know, cronies and stuff under a, just a new legal name. You know, it really shows um, where where the, the the values are at um, for those those management companies, and it's it's certainly not with the teachers, and not with the students, and not with the parents. I don't think. Yeah. So, talk a little bit about the the teacher sickouts in the public schools that have been happening over the last couple of weeks, and how that particular protest. It, you know, it struck me as a a very poignant one, considering the schools are literally making people sick. Yeah, um, you know, that, that was just kind of one of these these grassroots moments um, and I've never really seen or experienced anything like it that just kind of caught like wildfire where, you know, schools had been doing it here and there and um, then they just started picking up steam and to a certain extent, people, you know, finally started being able to, to feel, I think, empowered enough to, to kind of come, go to the media and, and just start talking because we had, we had tried so hard, despite being under emergency management, we had tried so hard to follow whatever institutional routes we could. Um, you know, we wrote the, the, my, my, my colleagues across a ton of buildings in the district and stuff um, through the, the DSP union, 
people wrote something like over 3,000 letters to state legislators in late November, early December, and this, you know, letter writing, you know, blitz to to try to inform them of, of what was going on. We did a rally day up in, in Lansing on, on a professional development day so it didn't impact the kids back in November. You know, and, and when when our union leadership and others would try to meet with the emergency manager, everything would just fall on deaf ears. Just And, and it's like those are the few institutional routes we had, right, yeah. to, to, to try to affect something. And um, at a certain point, you know, you, you get up, it's January 3rd or 4th, you pick up the paper your first day back at school um, after break, and it's saying your district's going to run out of money in April and that it's not a priority of the state legislature at all to deal with any of that. And I think people just kind of reached their breaking point. It, it really was one of the most grassroots, broad-based, mass-based um, things I've, I've ever seen, and, and the, especially in terms of how quickly it caught fire and, and people had just been so frustrated for so long um, and uh, kind of came together just to say, we, we can't, we have to make some noise about this. You can't just go quietly into that good night, right? We've got to make a stand here. And, and um, that's, I think, what, what you saw, just trying to, to bring some type of attention to um, what we've been trying to deal with. And again, people hadn't done stuff like this up to this point, because again, you're you're just trying to be there for the kids and, and just do do the best by the kids. And at, at a certain point, um, as one of my colleagues put it, like you, you just need to interrupt business as usual to 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 call attention to some really grave injustices and, as Jonathan Kozo calls them, kind of the savage inequalities that are um, you know festering here in 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 our the public school system in Detroit. And can you talk about the sort of decision uh, leading up to the sick outs and sort of the just briefly go over kind of the the process by which you came to the decision? How coordinated were they? They were, I would say, you know, I really think it was just building to building. Like people got together at, at meetings at, at buildings. Um, I think there was some, um, you know, different people talking across buildings and stuff, but uh it, it was really kind of just building to building to building, and it just kind of because people know each other in different buildings and stuff, it just started, uh, you know, catching on. But in terms of yeah, the organizing um, behind it, it, it was uh, like I said, it's just one of those kind of incredible moments where people you, you just see this pent up energy, and it just kind of bursts. People were just all ready to do something um, to call attention to things. What does this wave of activism say about, uh, you know, how the union is engaging politically? Um, I mean, you know, there's there's always, there's always going to be, you know, factionalism within every union and, and stuff. Um, I think that what I find really powerful is um, at this point, people are just ready to do things. And, and whatever factionalism and stuff was there, I see a lot less of it. Um, because I think more and more, um, um, uh, you know, across all these buildings, staff is really uniting to just kind of try to fight against this much more existential crisis that exists, this existential threat to the very just existence of our district. So, you know, there, there's people are, are just trying to plug in however they can and in whatever ways that they can. 
And so finally, the situation in Detroit and the situation in Flint are obviously connected because you had the same emergency manager. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the connection between the two and the, you know, some more things that people might not have noticed that the two situations have in common? Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the state of Michigan, you know, under that emergency management law, our governor, Rick Snyder, and I, I really want to emphasize his role <laughs> because I think that um, he's hired two new PR firms in the past week or, uh, to, to, you know, help spinning away the, the Flint water crisis, um, and, uh, it, which is really just shameful, I think. And, and uh, I see, you know, Darnell Early, who definitely is not ever going to be one of my favorite people in the world. Um, Darnell Early was the state-appointed emergency manager, appointed by Snyder up in Flint, um, oversaw this switch to the water up in Flint that, that has obviously everybody knows now about the, the lead poisoning and, and just the horrible public policy decision that that was. Despite the fact that Early did mention in a, a TV interview recently that it was a good, it was a good public policy decision with unintended consequences, um, which you can, you just can't make that stuff up. But after everything that's come out in the last week or so, he still makes that statement. I, I just don't know how much more your head can be in the sand um, than that. Yeah, so then early um, ended up becoming our emergency manager in Detroit Public Schools um, after his uh, time up in Flint. And uh, kind of the, the same issues that I think manifested themselves in Flint in terms of um, just kind of almost willful ignorance, it feels like, of the concerns and stuff of um, those at the grassroots, in this case, it's students, parents, and teachers, um, I think it is really characterized uh, his regime here in, in Detroit. But again, the common thread behind all of this is the emergency management law that it allows someone like Early to exist in the first place and give him the legal power to do these things. Um, and our, you know, our Republican governor is a big champion of this emergency management law, who who is placed Early in both of these places, and who again, our Governor Snyder. Um, yesterday, Darnell Early mentioned or made a statement that he will be resigning at the end of February. And uh, Governor Snyder, um, you know, came out and said that he's done a Darnell Early has done a great job, has a, I think a very good job under challenging circumstances, and that the reason that he's, you know, leaving his stint in DPS early is because he actually finished everything that he was set out to do ahead of time. That was just ruin two cities effectively. I guess that was what he was doing. Right. It's just, you know, and my kids, before we read Kindred, we were reading Animal Farm by George Orwell. And like just the, the, the just, you know, the parallels behind the, the kind of propaganda type language um, that's completely divorced from reality that we're seeing from Snyder and, and some people in our state government the parallels are eerie um, to a dystopian novel that involves animals. <laughs> I mean, um, you just can't make some of these statements up. Uh, so, yes, I, I think the common thread between DPS and between Flint is definitely this, this emergency management law that really makes it uh, incredibly difficult for anything other than uh, bottom-line financial uh, concerns to be taken into any public policy decision. I'm, I'm not sure what could happen next. Um, I, you know, there was a great piece uh, in our, our local alternative weekly Metro Times by uh, a woman named Ellie Gross recently, and she basically she wrote a column l- late last night about just 
you know, don't celebrate yet about early leaving because, well, he did a lot of damage. He was, he really was just kind of a cog in this machine, in this machine of emergency management and, and the way that it works in the state of Michigan. And so that's, you know, I'm, I'm trying to temper my enthusiasm for him being <laughs> on the way out the door with kind of this knowledge that the, the, the bigger structural problem is, is still there and we need to deal with it. And that was Joel Berger, a Detroit high school teacher, speaking about the crises in Flint and in Detroit. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that, where we talk about the pieces that we recently read, but alas, did not write. My pick is actually a twofer, um, two pieces combined. The first is Dream Bigger to Do Better by Katie Sipp, a friend of the Belabored podcast. She talks about how she's been soul-searching in recent weeks as she's discussed with some of her organizer friends what the labor movement should do to answer the challenge of the digital economy. Mainly, she takes on the idea of the 40-hour work week from an unusual angle. She warns against holding the trope of the full-time worker as some sacrosanct ideal, and instead daring to be more visionary about what we really want from work. She puts forward two contrasting ideas about what workers need and what they deserve. First, among her activist friends, she notes, overwhelmingly, organizers and policy experts express a need to find a, quote, new narrative that can compete with the sexiness of the tech industry's gig economy. It's hard for us to contemplate a new narrative because we're so committed to fighting for our old one. After all, through the stalwart efforts of the Fight for 15, the Our Walmart campaigns, we've finally gotten a sitting United States president to say the words that we love to repeat over and over again. Quote, no one should work full time and live in poverty. Close quote. In other words, everyone in the gig economy is talking about flexibility, about portable benefits, entrepreneurship, and of course, the end of the traditional work week. But many labor advocates chafe at this new speak, seeing it as a mask for a neoliberal rhetoric of free market evangelism that puts profits above people and subjects us to increasingly precarious conditions while killing off essential protections. And that's all true. On the other hand, are we really willing to go all out to defend the traditional, quote, full-time job in the sense of the 40-hour, five-day-a-week grind when many of us don't live or work that way? What we should be aiming for, Sip argues, is something more radical, more in line with the way people live and work today. Automation, digitization, and the demise of that 40-hour work week is actually kind of happening, whether we like it or not. So we need to decouple the ideal of economic equity from the notion that everybody deserves a full-time job full stop. The sentence, no one should work full-time and live in poverty, can be broken down. So what if we don't work full-time? Don't we deserve a decent life too? And why should anyone live in poverty, period, regardless of how many hours they work? She asks, what if you're a student who needs to work to pay your way through college? You're in high school and have a job to help your mom with the expenses. What if you're an undocumented worker who has to stand in a corner and hope somebody picks you up for a shift of landscaping that day? Do you deserve to live in poverty? 
it kind of sounds like we think you do. So from a broader left perspective, the answer to the sharing economy isn't necessarily to double down in existing systems and rally around in their defense. Yes, there are certain things we must defend. Essential labor rights that are enshrined in the Fair Labor Standards Act must be defended as a matter of economic justice. But the laws also have to evolve to meet contemporary and emerging threats and to expand as we expand our vision of what we really think an equitable workplace should be. And when those regulations become outmoded, then really the responsible thing for the labor movement to do is kind of learn how to roll with the punches without, of course, losing sight of those core principles. In a related article, I wanted to point to what Andrew Wright wrote in The Conversation, um, pointing to an idea that we actually discussed with SIP on the podcast last year, the universal basic income. The principle of stability that SIP writes about can also take the form of a guaranteed income instead of just guaranteed hours. And actually, when you think about it, the guaranteed income is what the 40-hour work week was ideally supposed to provide all of us. So White writes, quote, rather than lamenting what automation robs us of, why not use it to generate greater opportunities for leisure and education, as well as to liberate us from our constant anxiety that we will not be able to support our families in this unstable environment? To sum up, a century ago, 40 hours a week was a hard-fought victory for labor because it was better than, say, 60 or 80 hours a week. Today, people are daring to dream about things like, you know, flexible work hours that don't mean taking a cut in your pay and the ability to work less without sacrificing basic job security. And that time dynamic is what is becoming increasingly erratic, but it's also somewhat constrained by our rigid adherence to 40 hours as a magic measure of economic security. So blindly defending a certain work week or any specific labor standard runs the risk of invisibilizing certain aspects of the workforce that are becoming more prominent and more common. In that case, who wants a movement that will only fight to keep them in their current crappy work-life imbalance instead of allowing a healthy lifestyle where they can actually prioritize what's important to them in life? Besides, this idea of a short, flexible work week isn't really so new, considering that radicals with the Wobblies were championing a far shorter work week generations ago, before we even secured that 40-hour work week as the baseline for the Fair Labor Standards Act. So maybe the precedent set by the 40-hour work week can be seen as an ideal that was right for its time, but time evolves and our concept of time at work evolves too. And that desire for flexible work hours is actually something that might actually appeal to some professionals working in the labor movement and hell, maybe some journalists as well who feel strongly that people should have the right to work in a more flexible fashion despite the fact that they might advocate to defend 40 hours a week and full-time jobs, etc. for uh, you know the rest of the workforce. So why not advocate a more open-minded view of economic stability for all? The measure of job stability shouldn't be having set hours, but having set standards for fairness, for rights on the job, and for workplace democracy. SIP concludes, if what we actually want is economic and personal stability for all, why don't we just say it? Good question. Maybe once we start saying it out loud, we'll start thinking and talking less in terms of numbers of hours per week that we work and more in terms of what we'd really like to do with our time on or off the job. Longtime belabored listeners or readers of my work might know that I am, in fact, a rabid hockey fan. I grew up in Boston, which explains some of it. Um, even less longtime belabored listeners know I'm somewhat obsessed with the labor politics of sports. 
This week I am talking to you about the NHL All-Star Game. It is sort of an odd arg as never having been an NHL player, enforcer, or what we colloquially call goons. I could, act, I could not actually have written the piece that John Scott wrote for the Players' Tribune, but nevertheless, I was struck by the unvarnished look that this player gave us at what it's like to be one of the least respected guys in the league. The backstory for this is that John Scott was a banger for the Arizona Coyotes, and because All-Star games are generally boring as hell, some fans decided that it would be funny to organize a campaign to get this guy, whose job is usually to go out on the ice and punch another guy in the face, on the All-Star team. The fans' campaign worked, and Scott was voted to the top of the rankings. A guy who never in a million years would have been considered an All-Star was suddenly going to go to the game. The NHL was, to put it mildly, not pleased. Scott writes, of the day that he learned he had been traded from his team, forcing him to move his pregnant wife and the two children they already have to Canada, and he was being sent not to the Montreal Canadiens, but to their farm team in the AHL, meaning he would not qualify for the All-Star game. The league had already pressured him to tell fans not to vote for him, and asked him, he writes, if this was something his kids would be proud of. Meanwhile, the players supported him and said he should go, and the fans, who had started this whole thing as a kind of possibly nasty joke, ended up rallying around him. The league backed down. John Scott started in the All-Star game last Sunday as a team captain of one of four teams in a new tournament format. He competed in the skills competition, logging a harder slap shot than several of the league's best, scored two goals in the All-Star game, and was named its MVP when his team won the whole thing, meaning he gets a cut not only of a million-dollar check, but a new car for being the most valuable player. Unlike most of the guys on that team, the money will actually mean someone something to a player like him. But more importantly, it was an all-star game that for once didn't suck. I cried when they made him MVP. Because the thing you learned from the piece he wrote is how he didn't want to be a goon. He grew up wanting to play like Ray Bork, one of the best defensemen the game has ever known. He played hockey in college on a hockey scholarship, got an engineering degree, and was ready for his cubicle at GM, he writes. But when you're six foot eight and you get a call from an AHL team, it only means one thing. They want you to come fight. The league, not the players, decided that fights were part of the game. The coaches and the managers, not John Scott, decided that he was important enough to put on the ice when they wanted a fight, but an embarrassment when the fans voted for him. And his all-star weekend ended up being a tribute to the guys who make the least money and take the worst injuries in the game. John Scott stood up for the work he'd put in to get, into, to, get to where he was, and so I'll leave you with his words. Quote, I busted my ass to be one of them. I've skated every day since I was three years old to be one of them. I've persevered through juniors, roster cuts, Alaskan bus rides, advanced dynamics exams, and yes, fights to be one of them. But I'm one of them, and that means a lot to me. That is all for Belabored episode 96. As always, you can tweet at us at hashtag Belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you are a Detroit teacher or a longshore worker, a hockey player or an Uber driver, if your city has an emergency manager or just an elected official you don't like very much, or even if there's one you do like. There will be links to everything we've discussed today over at the Descent website, and we will be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored.